This week, we discover the separation of church and state, American liberal foreign policy, and, my personal favorite, Palestinian Christian involvement in Palestinian nationalist terrorism. This is news from your boring dystopia. Welcome back. Uh, I can't believe we actually made it to a fifth week, but here we are. Um, unfortunately, Layla has said that uh, other commitments have gotten in the way of the podcast, so she will not be joining us again this week. She may be back in the future uh, when time permits, but uh, for now, it's just going to be us again. So how are you guys doing? Doing well. Except fire is still burning. Living in an, yeah. Living in an inferno right now. I have expect like Satan to be elected like mayor or governor of California. I mean uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger already did it, so might as well uh, <laughs> might as well have an actual. If you, ask, if you ask like the few remaining conservatives in California, uh-huh. that, that they True. probably would agree with you that that's already happening. Yeah, yeah, I can believe <laughs> that. So, was there any news that we wanted to round up to start with before we move into the number of the day? Did anybody have any outstanding issues of the week? I mean, last week we had we didn't record last week actually, right. but last week we had the resignment of Japanese Prime Minister. Oh, uh, yeah, Abe. Yeah, I can't, I can't believe I forgot about that. Time Trump. goes so quick. Yeah, uh, he said he's had a medical problems, medical yeah. issues, so he had to resign. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly but what actually, that means. I don't but believe this. You think he's just yeah, like fed actually, up or I something? Yeah, I, th- I think. I mean, he was like seeing this downfall of the gdp in japan mm. like almost 30 percent so he was seeing that a storm was coming so he mm. gave up already i i can believe that because uh i mean i think abe is pretty well respected in japan and I, it would make sense to go out on top kind of seeming to end your career at a high point i mean there's only going to be tough times ahead but as a you know for a politician that seems a little bit of a cop-out i feel mm-hmm. like most politicians want to stay for the hard times but then again i guess that's uh, assuming their positive intention, which is a lot for some politicians. Yeah, we had the 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 guy from Belarus, not not Belarus, but the guy from Russia was poisoned, really mm-hmm. poisoned. Yeah, Navalny. Yeah. By the yeah. Yeah, that was uh. So yeah, so uh, so he came out of a coma, correct? Uh, I, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's so, conscious now. All right. That, well, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. I mean, it's definitely not safe to be an opposition leader. Uh, so is there... I know that Russia's been in trouble for using this nerve agent outside of Russia, but um, have you guys heard of other uh, opposition leaders like who have been poisoned or anything? No, uh, uh, that guy that was like in Great Britain. Yeah, yeah. I know Britain about that one. And was poisoned. Uh-huh. And his daughter yeah, as well. But, I mean, I don't remember. His daughter too? Yeah, because I, uh, I think I what they did was it. they put it on the doorknob of the door. And so he, he did it and his daughter uh, also touched the doorknob. I can't remember if you, which one died or if either died. I, I, it was a while ago, but yeah, the Russians yeah. clearly have a history of violating uh, national sovereignty and uh, you know, not to mention human rights and, and all of that. Glad nobody licked the doorknob. That yeah, been, that probably would have been instant death. <laughs> no, the 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 FSB, if they're after you, that that is not an organization you want to be after you. I'd rather be chased by like an entire like cartel than have the FSB because they'll find you. They have a way they have, they have networks to get anything, you know, I don't know. There's no escaping them if they want you. Yeah. Yeah. They killed, they killed Trotsky, right? Yeah. 
yeah. in Mexico. I mean, at, at the top of the list, like, we can go down, like, who knows, like, how many people they've killed. They probably killed so many people and we don't even know it was them. No, yeah, right. Especially in the period of Soviet Union, which yeah. was a very closed country. Mm-hmm. They didn't know anything, what's going on, for sure. Unfortunately, this thing is like a, the normalization of extermination of your opposition. Yeah, yeah. Since I, since I don't know how to do it, let's kill it. Yeah, I mean, well, you can't argue with its effectiveness. I mean, it works. Like, whether or not you yeah. actually kill him, he definitely leaves the country and he's no longer a threat, really. For sure. Yeah. Uh, Antonio, did you want to say anything about the fires? Yeah, so I was saying earlier that the fires definitely have directly affected me. Bruno was saying that it might have affected him. It was just affecting Brazil. No, no, no. Yeah, some time ago, I mean, there was a like, huge fires in the Amazon when the president... Even Emmanuel Macron, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was like manifesting about it on social media and stuff. There was like a a huge smog, uh, smoke that came through some over Sao Paulo and make Sao Paulo like night in the middle of their afternoon. But in it, it didn't it didn't hit Rio only Sao Paulo, but I mean it was uh, great huge news here in Brazil. So I've shared with you because I mean. It's, it's, it's similar a, experience. Yeah, no, it's similar experience, and it's not a, a totally groundbreaking thing for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's not so much like fires are nothing new in the West here, but the scale of these is just absolutely massive, uh, like unprecedented. Exactly. Growing up in California, we had spare the air days every once in a while where it was advised to not go outside, um, but it's never been, you know weeks and weeks of of aqi above like 150 this is this is definitely the first time this has ever happened yeah i mean if you look at the images from space it's pretty crazy it's just on fire i don't even know the number now but there's uh, it's crazy and uh one thing i was hearing about was uh relating to the fires was that insurance rates are getting crazy for people to insure their houses against fire because there's just not enough money to go around uh, because obviously, you know, you pretty much need to insure. If you have a house in California, you pretty much need to insure it against fire. Uh, it's a very real risk. So, uh, but insurance companies they just can't afford it, and the rates are going up. So it's going to be very difficult for you know private people to afford you know decent fire insurance, and that's going to be a huge problem. Because can you imagine like the the limiting to economic growth that would come out of that if people are afraid to literally build a house because they can't insure it to the value that the house is worth? People just aren't going to build houses or, or build on property, yeah. and it's, that's a huge economic problem. And people already aren't building houses in California, which is the, the big problem. There's, like, we could have a whole discussion on NIMBYism, which I'm like a huge expert on, but like, um, yeah, people are well, just not why, building Well, why don't you California. give everybody a, a lowdown on that? Oh, with uh, – so, yeah, I actually worked for this attorney back in San Francisco uh, where we were going against CEQA legislation. CEQA is basically – the type of laws that are being exploited by NIMBYs. It's like, there's a lot of different laws, but that's one of the big ones. And so they make these arguments that, they're, they make actually two arguments, but with CEQA, which is one of the arguments, they make the argument that building homes is is you know destructive to the environment, which has some truth to it, but largely it's to protect their, their the large motivation, you know, the largest uh, CEQA lawsuits, the, num- the largest number of CEQA lawsuits are in the cities. They are in urban, dense areas already, which doesn't make any sense because CEQA is not being used in the grasslands. It's not being used in the areas with lots of nature. Mm-hmm. So it goes to show you that these laws are being abused. And then number two, 
they want they a lot of the times they they argue that a lot a lot of these areas are historic areas like this is our historic laundromat that nobody uses because everybody has washing machines this is the historic laundromat uh you know it's dirty it's it's just like it's full of trash everywhere but we you know we we don't want it to turn into basically affordable housing so it's definitely a big battle here in california it's sad to know that the uh Battle for affordable housing is gonna is gonna get more is gonna get worse. You know, hopefully we can yeah. you hopefully we can utilize some technology to like more fireproof buildings. I think that would be wise. Yeah, one thing that always struck me when I came to the United States was um, so in Egypt everything was built out of cement, like all the buildings were because um, I mean the building materials there's like there's little wood and there's a lot more uh, the stuff that you need to make cement. And when I came to the US, I was like astounded. Like I was like all these houses, they're made out of wood. That's like insane. Why would you build your house out of wood? It could burn. Like, you know, all it takes is one dryer lint, uh, not being cleaned out, you know, like one of the, the filter screens and your house is just on fire. So I don't know. I always thought that was kind of funny, but I mean, you know, costs of course, and any ease of building dictate your materials. But yeah, I, I, I always, I never quite got that, especially in a warmer climate. Cause I get that it's harder to insulate cement, you know, wood houses are, can be kept warmer. But if you live in like you know Southern California, why why not just have a cement house? You know, it's cooler. It's you know. Yeah, in Brazil, generally all the all the houses are made of cement too. It's it's, it's not made of, uh, wood made is not a common type of house here. I I think I think it mostly has I mean, to do with temperature because it's harder to insulate it. So like up here, it, it probably wouldn't make sense because it would be so expensive to heat a cement house in you know New England. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in like you know the south or, or in Brazil, it it helps you because it's cooler. Yeah. If my house ever does catch on fire and then it burns to the ground, I'm replacing it with cement. So. All right. All right. Great. Great news. Yeah, I mean it will also be uh more durable against landslides. I've heard that people um well because you know landslides are a huge issue in California as well, and um I heard that like I've heard a lot of stories of people surviving landslides because their houses were cement. Because like if if you're asleep in the middle of the night, there's nothing you can do to even escape a landslide. But if your house is cement, at least you have a chance. Yeah, I was talking. Yeah, hey, Brazil. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I I don't agree with this perspective actually. Uh, about the landslide cement and cement be more safe safer because i mean here in brazil especially in rio when there's a lot of hills in the city and it's a very populated city i mean you have all the favelas and a lot of houses that are built on the hills so mm. they're all basically made of cement and every single summer which is the rainy season here in brazil especially in rio a lot of people die because of landslides well, in Man's the favelas, it's in- it's like uh, the, the the top, it's kind of counterintuitive to Americans, but the higher uh, land is less valuable, correct? The poorer people live higher up because it's further from water and it's more dangerous for landslides. No, no, no. Here, because, uh, I mean, it's a, there are a lot of public lands, so mm-hmm. it's, it's the land of the government, as, a, as, a, as I can say. So as a government, it doesn't have a lot of fiscalization. Uh, people that doesn't have any place to live or like uh, I mean it's have some how can I say it a social issues about it because in Rio the first favela of Brazil was in Rio it uh, originated by how can I say a reform in the city the last the former mayor the mayor at the time wanted to make Rio the Paris of the tropics something like this so there are a lot of people that poor people there were living in the plain areas of the city but I mean, 
how can I deal with the poor people living in the Paris of tropics? I want to be some uh, uh, mixed city looks like more aristocratic and stuff. So they basically destroy all these poor people houses and the government didn't give them any assistance. So they have to look for some places to live, but at the same time, close to downtown to be close to the jobs, the servers and stuff. So the hills, all the hills, they're like in real serve for poor people to have this piece of land where to live, but and at the same time close to the close to downtown. So I mean, the basically the favelas are this dynamic are made up are made of this dynamic. I mean, uh, segregation that the cost of living downtown was are very high. So poor people to that wants to live next to downtown to work and stuff, goes to these public lands, invaded, make irregular houses uh, with the low infrastructure, with the low, uh, I mean, public service. And generally when the rain falls hard, uh, all this land slides and a lot of people die. So it's, it's a major concern here. Mm. I mean, every single summer, we, it's even sad because we know that it was happen, that it was happen. Yeah, and it's really difficult to regulate. And at this point, there's not much you can do. I mean, there's just so many people crammed into a small area. Yeah. There's no legal documentation or anything. Yeah, and it's like, a, how can you take these people out of there? I mean, mm-hmm. they're all constructed all their life there. I mean, even they have a identity uh, rooted to the favelas. I mean, all the the family, friends, and stuff are raised there. So, how can you simply remove people from these places? Well, from it's my understanding, quickly. they they go through every year and they like legitimize a couple of them, or they like they start to go in and and kind of clear it out and, and kind of more formally govern it. Is that correct? They start to like give you know actual streets and stuff like that. Especially in the election times. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, uh, um, uh, some deputy or some mayor want to be elected, reelected, so he goes to these places that demand a lot of the smaller piece of public assistance will make a huge difference so yeah they go there try to make a like a show and people vote for them because i mean if i had the, this place of, the place of these people who doesn't who doesn't have anything to protect them or take care of them any type of attention or assistance or i mean construction of dignity i i'll be into them and vote for them because I mean, it's very sad, but it's very real. Yeah. And we, ha- we, we call these people like corals because the, the government, the, the, not the government, but the politicians make like a election coral. They, they treat these people like uh, animals mm-hmm. uh, treat them only f- treat them the basic, the necessary to live, to vote for them. Right. So it's, it's a very dark face of Brazil. I mean. Yeah, uh, especially yeah. in Rio, where you have thirty percent. Thirty percent. Let me search for it. Have you seen City of God, Bruno? It's like a yeah. award-winning film. You have. Yeah. yeah is yeah. is it accurate to like the the lifestyle in the favelas? Would you say, or is it a little? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's totally there. Okay. Even With armed I think that... people are armed a lot of the time, and that's that's tough. No, me. no. Uh, I mean, armed, armed, all of. Uh, armed all of the time i don't think it's real because you have this remember then some episodes ago i talked about factions like this game oh, yeah, yeah, thing. The faction. 
Yeah, they... I mean, they manage the drug trafficking here in Rio, so they have guns to protect them and to protect uh, their areas from other gangs. But the majority of the people who lives in the, the citizens who lives in the favelas are like people who doesn't have guns, people who just want to have a dignity life, work every day, normal people. The, uh, because uh, we have some prejudice here in Brazil, especially in people tour. Because Brazil have the, the division between the asphalt, which is the people who doesn't live in favelas, and the hills, which are people who live in the favelas. So there's a lot of prejudice from people from the asphalt says that every person in favelas are criminals or they're poor people because there are a lot of rich people in the favelas. It's not the majority. I mean, but people who has money, I mean, it's, it's represents a part of the reality. I mean, you know, seed of God is uh, half truth. It's not the total truth, but it's half truth. And certainly I'm sure some are worse than others in terms of crime and, and uh you know the people carrying weapons and stuff like that they're they're not all like some of them are, are quite nice no. actually but some of them are very bad yeah 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 oh 22 percent of people 22 okay. that's still a lot of people yeah. when you consider the how many what's the total population of rio like some 10 tens of six millions million. six million yeah but depends what what do you cons uh how do you classify what a favela is because yeah. they have this, this kind of debate what a favela is. It's a uh, only thing that on hills, I mean, we have like a uh, plain favelas, which mm -hmm. are uh, favelas who are in the uh, plain places. It's, it's kind of hard to define what a favela is. I mean, I'm, I'm not specialized in this subject, but we have this debate. What yeah. a favela is. Well, I mean, it's difficult when there's, you know, technically no legal classification. You know, normally people default to whatever the government says, but if the government doesn't say anything about it, then who's to say what mm -hmm. is and what isn't mm -hmm. uh so bruno did you have a number of the week to bring yeah all right i have a number let's of the hear week. it the number of the week is 68 68 68 all right keep it in mind uh we'll think about it we may need some clues but um but we'll, we'll keep it in, in our heads as we go along um so yeah uh, uh did any of you have a preference as to who want to do their segment first uh Antonio, Bruno, do you want to go go first? Antonio? So, um, in a week of plague, pestilence, and hellfire, especially on the West Coast, as the United States slowly moves away from secularization, exemplified in probably the most religious vice president in my lifetime, Mike Pence, who probably doesn't even believe in evolution unless it's to explain how gay marriage is unnatural, all is not lost for advocates of secularization and internet atheists from 2005, there is a glimmer of hope in the North in North Africa. Sudan's government has ruled to separate religion from the state, ending 30 years of Islamic rule. Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok and a leader from the Sudan People's Liberation Movement, North Rebel Group, adopted a document that, st that states, quote, for Sudan to become a democratic country where the rights of all citizens are enshrined, the constitution should be based on the principle of separation of religion and state, in the absence of which the right to self-determination must be respected. One should always be skeptical of political theocrats who uh, weaponize religion in order to achieve power, as well as sell books to my mom. As, as religious politics begins to lose its grasp on the Sudanese government, it becomes more likely that people begin to focus on their material circumstances 
rather than focusing on structuring government around life or death. Hopefully the people of Sudan can begin to become more critical of the people in power who can use faith to oppress them. I can't help but think about America's evangelicals and religious people who oftentimes in rural areas vote against their self-interests, especially with regards to class. Donald Trump especially won in 2016 with evangelicals. And I was just wondering, Andrew, what your take on it was. Why is it, do you think, that religious people, especially in the United States, seem to work with the wealthy, even though the wealthy oftentimes don't have to share the same class interests? Yeah. Religious people, specifically. Yeah, so I think it's... it's um. I don't think it's actually so complicated because I think it goes back to what I said, uh, whether it was last episode or, or it might have been two episodes ago, where um, if conservatives are forced to choose between conservatism and democracy, they will um, they'll always choose conservatism and they'll sell out democracy. So I think it's just uh, it's a convenient an alliance of convenience. Basically, the evangelicals are a very focused single issue group. They 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 only they don't really care about anything except for pushing their far right religious beliefs, and um, so any any party that's going to pick up that issue, they're happy to fall in line <clears throat> with. Um, you know they don't they don't really care about other social issues or economic issues. They just want to see. Um, the the far right religious issues and things related to Israel, um, you know, backed and and whatever has to go along with that they're fine with because they're uh, that's their primary issue. I think evangelicals, you know, like a lot of very conservative uh, religious people, see that as uh, an issue larger than you know mundane issues. You know, po- they could care less about politics. They're just trying to secure their way to heaven. I guess you could say. Yeah, interesting. I have a different take. So I think there is actually strong biblical evidence that Jesus would be a Trump supporter today in 2020. Mm, that's a controversial uh, statement. Romans, <laughs> Romans 13, 1. Let every person be in subjection to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which are which exist are established by God. So Jesus would clearly support the law and order candidate, and sleepy Joe Biden, on the other hand, would be weak on crime, and is actually controlled by Antifa, who are controlled by George Soros, who are actually controlled by devil worshipping, uh, you know, who's actually a devil worshipping pedophile, according to QAnon sources that right, I was looking right. at. And um, so ignore Jesus's long hair, how Jesus wanted to feed the poor, ignore his message of loving immigrants and outsiders, ignore the fact that he's brown and from the Middle East. Hopefully, as Sudan moves away from isolationism and towards a more secular future, we can all remember this other quote by, by Jesus, Matthew twenty two twenty one: 21. Render to Caesar the things... <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, where he basically is like pro-secular government. Right. right. I, I interpret it that way. Yeah, no, I think that's that's often how it's interpreted. But yeah. And I was joking. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, no. I know. I think there's a valid point there, I and mean, we can have a theological argument about it, I guess. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I think there's there's uh, <clears throat> biblical uh, and theological evidence to suggest the positive separation of church and state. Yeah, no, I think it's a good point. But I oh, think yeah. yeah, go ahead, Bruno. We should, sorry. We should, okay, we should remember that. I mean, the one of the first or the first. How can I say a, a person that promoted the division between the state and the church was John Calvin, or a, a, mm-hmm. a Protestant that, mm-hmm. I mean, evangelical in these days would be. 
and he said it was important. I mean, you think Switzerland or France was the first state to to do so. I don't remember exactly, but I think he's the first guy to say in in, uh, in the Western world or one of the major thinkers about it. And it's it's it, it's very it's very similar to Brazil. This case about the evangelical people, because in my opinion, evangelical people elected Bolsonaro. I mean, I can say. I mean, almost with authority and argument, because uh, don't don't worry, guys. I'm I'm Protestant. I'm a Presbyterian guy. I don't know if this any type of different connotation here there in the U.S., but I mean, okay, it doesn't matter. I'm Protestant. A lot of see, I'm people from my church and people from evangelical people that I know. They're like strong supporters of Bolsonaro. There is a uh, sent by God. To... <laughs> this kind of crap. Trump uh, sent by God and stuff. And I mean, uh, as Andrew said, sometimes I really believe, I mean, the majority of the time, I still believe that evangelical people doesn't, I think, the, uh, well, the majority of them or the mainstream of them uh, doesn't care about any other agenda except for there to push their... Yeah. Uh, and I'd be remiss if I, I just realized I forgot a point earlier about uh, evangelicals in the United States, which is uh, Supreme Court appointments. Uh, because they see the judicial system as a way of overturning things like Roe v. Wade, which is uh, the Supreme Court case that uh, basically uh, guaranteed a woman's right to choose, um, and and other they they see the courts as a short circuit way without legislation to enforce their like right wing values. Uh, sorry, Bruno, did you have more to say? I just wanted to add that because I realized I forgot it. No, yeah. For example, a president was elected as said, and he said that. He would move, I mean, as Trump, uh, because they're very similar in, in many aspects. They're very similar. They, uh, the evangelical, do you remember the seats that I told you in the Senate and the Congress, the, the, the seats of the Bible, Bible seats? So these kind of people that like pushed Bolsonaro to move. I don't know if he pushed them to move or was a plan of him to move the uh, embassy in Brazil. Of Brazil in Israel to Jerusalem instead of being Tel Aviv and I mean it was created a lot of debate here because Brazil is the biggest exporter of, of halal meat to the Eastern countries like Muslim countries so move the the embassy to Jerusalem will create a diplomatic and commercial beef and literally and literally beef yeah literally halal beef. <laughs> yeah and, yeah, and the halal beef would make the Brazil economy even worse because, I mean, Brazil depends a lot of this trade beef, meat, and, I mean, animal derivative things. Right. Um, so uh, one thing I wanted to, to add to that was um, I think I think there are kind of like two types of religious structures in history and, and political history. Uh, you have like uh, people like the historical Catholic Church, which they created this religious structure primarily as a means of political power and wielding political power. Um, if you think about the Catholic Church throughout history as an intergovernmental organization or even a super governmental organization that um, kind of works in many, many countries. And that's, you know, unique in history, right? You know, it's only recently we have things like the United Nations, but prior to that you had the church that united uh, many countries. And then you have people who are ideologically motivated or, or culturally motivated like evangelicals in the United States 
who basically they all they care about is enforcing their kind of concept of morality or their social values. And I think both of those have issues when you bring them into politics, of course, uh, kind of from opposite ends of the spectrum. But either way, I think the biggest problem with the uh, when you mix religion and politics is this idea of irrationality. Uh, politics is supposed to be like a science. It's supposed to be based on kind of objective and uh, evidence-based action. And of course, you know, how you implement this is different. If it's democracy, you're counting on people voting in their best interests. Or if it's authoritarianism, you're counting on like some kind of social contract to keep them in power. But um, with when you involve religion in that, it starts to become less logical. Suddenly, faith and belief start to take precedence. And that becomes a huge problem because you can't set policy on belief. You just can't. Policy has to be set based on objective facts and statistics and, uh, you know, established methodologies. So uh, once you start mixing those two, it becomes very difficult to, uh, you know, put forth coherent and effective policy, in my opinion. And and I guess that's an argument for a, a good, solid, and impartial uh, civil service. Career people in the government who aren't motivated by politics, just by good policy. But that's just my opinion on that one. I'm sure you guys have similar opinions no, on yeah. religion and that. Oh, yeah, I, I have some similar opinions, but at the same time, I mean, uh, I said that we have to do something, uh, polit- policies based on science and stuff, but... I mean, the, the, we have a certain kind of problem with that because the very notion of dignity, freedom, humanity, and rights of human beings was like, it came from a Christian heritage in the Western society. Because, I mean, it, biologically, we're just a other species of primates, so we don't have inherently rights. So mm. who told this? This this myth that we have a uh, human rights. I mean, uh, no, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, we understand. It, yeah. I, no, uh, do, do it is a I myth. Mean? It is a myth. Yeah, it's a myth that we all choose to believe. Yeah. So I mean, since you have this kind of belief uh, set in, especially in our constitutions, I mean, uh, why uh, what would be the limit to set to create some policies? They're based on myth, like uh, human rights or human dignity or human value, other technicians and technocracies, other kind of politics. This technocratic, right? Technocracy, yeah, technocratic, yeah. Yeah, yeah, technocratic things, I mean, are based on other beliefs. So which beliefs is right? I mean, based on the technocracy. We have the uh, technocracy about in Soviet Union that was based on Marx things, and we have them I mean, these technocracies in in liberal countries that based on I mean ne- neoliberal economics. So mm-hmm. I mean, depends. I mean that uh, as I said, I agree with you, but as you said, that we need things based on science. But I mean, who is the scientist? Yeah, well, that's uh, a fair question. Is, yeah, I mean, it's not that uh, for me. It's not that simple. Right. It's definitely a good point. There definitely needs to be some sort of like cultural belief, whether it's religion, whether it's a belief in human rights that guides the basically people to not be so cruel to each other. I think that that's definitely right. a good point. Yeah. And I it's think, just a question of. Yeah. I think religion has historically, you're right. Like it's exactly what you said in like the Western tradition. Uh, a lot of this has grown out of it. I mean, uh, partially due to the fact that, uh, the people who were literate originally were clergy and the, and the people who did academic work were clergy. But it, it, prov- it provides a strong foundation of kind of 
morality and um, like just a, a social and cultural base from which you can expand this idea of political rights and stuff like that. I don't think it's so clear cut as the founding fathers or John Locke would want us to believe, but um, I think it is kind of an ideal to work towards. It's always that balance. Do you yeah. do you go toward? Do you you have to have a belief system, but then how much can that belief system influence your law? Way? No, yeah, it's it, it's the dialogue and debates started with this thing about. A, a, a morality that was based in Christian and Western values and the uh, very concept of republic, I mean, from Latin, like a things of the public, of the people. So who is the people? I mean, the uh, I mean, America and Brazil are not only made by people Christian born in people. Rome, the only true citizens. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, how, how, uh, I, I don't know how to develop my thinking. Yeah, I, I, I know what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, who, 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 no one dictates that. You know, society has to kind of yeah, come to consensus. You don't have to make policies only based on Christian values and for Christian people because the people are not only Christians. Right. Well, and not, mean, not only that, but be we'd be limiting ourselves if we did. Like, I mean, I think we'd be selling ourselves short if we didn't look at other perspectives and perhaps take, you know, what they what uh, those better values are and adapt them and use them uh, and make our, make our own system better. I think that's something that the United States has actually done a decent job of in its history is taking uh, beneficial cultural artifacts from everybody who's coming and adapting it into kind of a more um, uh, just better overall for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Antonio, was that was that everything that, that you had about that? Was that the end of your my spiel? Um, well, yeah. Bruno definitely had some insight that's completely um, yeah. enlightened me to another way of thinking. I think uh, Brazil. Ha a lot of Americans should look more closely at Brazil because it's a pretty interesting country. I think there's a lot that Americans can learn about it. And of course, there are many, many Brazilians living in the United States. I know in my area, there's so many. Uh, in like New England, hmm? especially especially in Boston, yeah. there are a huge number of Brazilians in Boston. Yeah, like I can find guarana and stuff in, in just in the store and stuff. And um, yeah, you say, say guarana? Yeah, say guarana. <laughs> guarana. How do you yeah, say? It? Here you say gua guarana. 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 Yeah. Guarana. Yeah. The 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 na is the strongest part. Yeah, for people who don't know, uh, guarana is uh, it's a fruit in uh, Brazil that grows in the Amazon. It's very caffeinated, uh, but they make it into like a soda, and it's really delicious. Would recommend. Yeah, give it a try. It's sponsored by guarana. Yeah, so, hey, if they reach out to me, I will gladly shout out because it's probably my favorite soda. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll make like a, a demand for the company that produces. Yeah, you should send it to them. Guarana, faz um. Alright, now we're getting the big box. They're, they're coming in already. I'm gonna go check my mailbox. We, we gotta sell, we're selling out to Big Guarana. Yeah, yeah. No, it's funny you say that though, because uh, I can never pronounce Portuguese. Like, my, my Spanish pronunciation is really good, like, my Arabic accent is really good, but Portuguese is, like, beyond me, with, like, the C's and the X's and the, yeah. Yeah, the access of uh, a great problem. Even, even Brazilians are getting confused about it. Yeah. I mean, the X, you have a, a Z sound, C sound, 
X sound, S sound. I mean, yeah. it's very, it's a very flexible letter. <laughs> I guess, uh, Bruno, do you want to go first, or do you want me to jump into my topic? Because uh, we can go either way. Mine kind of blends into his okay. because it's kind of related to religion. Um, and I'm I'm sad that your your uh, your segment didn't have more to do with actual Sudan because there's so much interesting stuff just about Sudan and, and as you know South Sudan is the most n- the newest country in the world, uh, I think it's pretty fascinating. But we talked about Su- we talked about Sudan, didn't we, a couple episodes ago? Maybe I think we were talking about Egypt or something. Speaking, yeah. maybe you would be more you know more of the expert in discussion. Yeah, maybe we'll have to we'll have to talk about it uh, one episode, but. Um, yeah, I mean, South Sudan and North Sudan split. North Sudan is uh, majority Arab and Sunni, and South Sudan is majority Black and Christian. Oh, and also uh, like local tribal religions. But I, I, I always thought that was fascinating. And there's there's been a whole bunch of conflict between those ethnic groups. So I think personally, I'm generally not as a rule, but almost as a rule against uh, secessionist movements. I don't think the way forward is uh, more uh, individual independence. I think. We should look more together or commonalities rather than differences. Um, but I think in that case, uh, the, especially in those colonial um, arbitrary states, uh, it's probably a better idea if you have such such different ethnic groups. But speaking of colonial states uh, with ethnic groups that are very different, let's jump into my favorite topic, uh, Israel-Palestine. And specifically today, I have a topic to bring that is uh, very unique, and I've I've always I've loved it. So a while ago, I, I wrote a, I wrote a research paper uh, about uh, Palestinian Christian terrorism. I was taking a terrorism class at the time, and I was noticing a lot of correlations that I uh, in, in other academic areas related to terrorism that I thought could be applied to the conflict in a way that hadn't previously been applied. So. I think to start, uh, we need to like clear the air that the nature of the conflict between Israel and Palestine isn't one of Judaism against Islam. It's it's more of a, a nationalist struggle, a, a colonial struggle. Um, uh, Palestinians, the people living on the land, uh, and uh, the Israelis who are coming from other places to settle the land. And it it happens that 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 religion is plays a big deal since. Obviously, Israel is the only Jewish state, and it very dearly clings to that identity. And Palestinians are overwhelmingly Sunni Muslim, but that's not necessarily entirely the case, as I will uh, point out. So, the the Palestinian liber- uh, liberation movement is just by nature secular, and for the vast majority of its history, it has been almost completely secular, if not leftist, uh, most as an attempt to cater to the. Uh, leftist and atheist uh, in the days of uh, the Soviet Union trying to cater to them. So just to put some statistics down, uh, roughly about 20% of the Palestinian population is Christian. Uh, However, 70% of this 20% live outside of Palestine as part of the diaspora. They were some of the first to leave uh, after uh, the Nakba and everything like that in uh, 1948. So Basically, they are a very small minority of the population, but as I'm going to sh- uh, show going forward, they play an outsized role in the conflict and just in society in general in Palestine. Um, so now that we've kind of set the stage in terms of demographics, um, let me just debunk some myths about terrorism because that, that's always necessary um, to kind of understand how this conflict plays out. And please stop me ask questions if you have any questions because I'm happy to to ask about it or to answer them. So 
there's this kind of idea that uh, terrorists are poor, uneducated people. They they chose they choose to do it because they don't have any options, and their life is so bad that they're desperate and they have nothing to lose. But it's it's absolutely false. It could not be further from the truth. Statistics taken from uh, deceased Hezbollah militants show that they are uh, much more likely to have obtained a secondary education or higher. Uh, much they're uh, much more likely than the rest of the Lebanese population. Uh, just in general, across the board, militants are also, uh, on average, three years younger than the population average, meaning that they've achieved a higher level of education in a shorter amount of time. And they're also statistically less likely to be impoverished than the rest of the population. And these these findings, it's nowhere near isolated. Like, it's not just contained to Palestine. It's uh, everywhere. If you go look at the uh, Tamil Tigers, it, um, they also tend to be well-educated, middle-class, and well-off, even suicide bombers. So uh, there's really, uh, yeah, uh, so data confirms that the majority of suicide bombers have obtained a high school degree or higher, and they're 50% uh, less likely to live in poverty than the Palestinian population as a whole. So there's this clear correlation between educated middle-class people and terror activity. So that, I think that's the first thing that, um, that we need to understand is it's not poor people who are doing terrorism. Poor people have enough to worry about. Like they're just trying to take care of their families and, and live their lives. It's educated middle-class people who have the means and time and knowledge to, to go about uh, carrying out terror activity. So now let's hop back to, to uh, the Palestinian Christian case specifically. So historically, the Palestinian Christian minority has been very important in Palestine. So in 1922, in mandatory Palestine, 9.4% of the population was Christian. However, 21.2% of the Palestinian elites at that time were Christian. So while the population was very small, uh, the members of this population were very well off and important in society and, and uh, critical to the functioning of the um, uh, whatever uh, ad hoc systems were set up under British rule. And then if you go even further into that statistic, 27.3% of the uh, leaders of the elite, so the top 1%, you know, if you think of the elites as 10, the top 10% of society, the elites of the elites, like the top 1%, 27.3% of these were Christian. So even amongst the elites, the Christians were better off than the, the other Muslim elites. And, and that, that uh, goes across all of the population. So the Christian population as a whole is generally better off than the Muslim uh, majority economically and education wise. Um, and so these elites were obviously critical in the day-to-day -day functioning of mandatory Palestine. Um, they were often the people negotiating with the British. They were often the people uh, doing, uh, being in the civil service uh, and stuff like that. So they were the, the people who made things work uh, and, and the people who you had to know in order to get things done. Uh, another really important aspect of the Christian community in Palestine is that while in some countries, uh, minorities tend to group together and, and uh, become segregated and form their own identity as a community, uh, Palestinian Christians to this day remain very interspersed with their Muslim uh, countrymen. So um, you, you can't, you can't go, like while there are areas of uh, concentration like uh, Galilee and uh, Ramallah, you can't point to any one area that is like only Christian or only Muslim. They're mixed out throughout the entire population. So 
what this means is that uh, Christian communities never uh, never created this identity separate from the Palestinian Muslim identity. So they just see themselves as Palestinians, and the Muslims also see themselves as Palestinians, whether their countrymen are Christian or Muslim or uh, Druze or you know whatever my small minorities exist, Catholic, uh, Maronite, all other uh, Christian uh, denominations. So uh, there really forms this sense, especially uh, once you know Jewish settlers start arriving. There's this idea of Palestinian nationalism that overrides all religion. So that's an important thing that needs to be understood about uh, the relevance of Palestinian Christians. But another thing that really kind of plays more directly into terrorism is the emphasis and privilege that Palestinians have had that allows them to put emphasis on education. So uh, Palestinian Christians place an enormous uh, emphasis on education. Uh, 56% of Palestinian Christians have a college degree or higher, which is pretty astounding considering that's a higher average than most countries. Uh, and considering that Palestine is a very poor, like, nation. Uh, we can't say state, unfortunately, but we can say nation. While only uh, 34% of Muslims in Palestine can say the same. So Palestine itself has always been very well educated, um, and I'll, I'll talk more about that later, but um, there ha there are a, a large number of uh, universities set up in the West Bank, and, and uh, uh, Palestinians tend to be very well educated in general, but especially the Palestinian Christians. And Christians also represent 17% of all university students in Israel, as well as having the highest scores of all demographics in the matriculation examinations in Israel. So even in Israel, the, um, the Christians are seen as a, a very like well-educated and academic kind of class. Uh, incidentally, uh, Palestinian Christians have higher rates of divorce, a larger unmarried population. They tend to get married later than their Muslim counterparts, uh, all of which are... Um, kind of correlated with uh, rates of education and, and income. And this is important to the terrorism aspect because marriage is the number one uh, indicator against terrorism. If someone is married, they are more than any other factor unlikely to enter into terrorism. And that the reason is because they have a family, they have uh, a place in society, that, you know, they have a, not, not just that the family's counting on them, but that they've bought into the, the basically the system and, they, and, and now they're committed to that. I mean, there's a, you can go into a lot of reasons why uh, marriage is an indicator against terrorism, but the fact is, like, it's very rare to find a terrorist who is uh, married and, and uh, has a family. So can can I yeah can I make a comment yeah no that's very interesting I never I never thought about it but Ian never knew about it about this the relation between marriage and the rates of being propensed to be a terrorist yeah it's the it's I the mean, single highest variable yeah you could say in other words that terrorists are the ultimate incels that are honestly super mad about yeah them. like it, it was it I mean. It, you're not wrong. Like the, you, you could make a comparison like that because, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not so much that they can't get married so much. I mean, I'm sure that is the case for some people, but it's just that once they are married and have a family, they are a lot less likely to see political means of violence as a priority, basically. Is there any statistic that prove the same thing? I mean, uh, the, sh uh, the school shooters in the U.S. Mm. are people that was not dating or any kind of relationship i would expect i would expect there to be similar data i don't know but i mean i think in terms of mass shootings in the united states mental illness is also a very big factor and, and mm -hmm. of course that mental illness is also a factor against uh marriage and uh participation in society and stuff like that 
So I, there's a lot of variables, but I'm sure that, that there would be some kind of statistic to, to kind of back that up, that a person is much less likely to commit any kind of violence if they're married or have a family rather than uh, especially political violence. I don't want to I don't want to extrapolate too far, but definitely I'd say they're much less likely to be politically violent. So, yeah, basically there are a number of key figures. So, let's go more to the micro scale. There are a number of very key figures who are present in the Christian uh, community that are very important to uh, Palestinian terrorism. So, the first intifada, uh, basically you can trace that. Uh, if people aren't familiar, it was an uprising that happened in the early 90s. Um, uh, largely peaceful where and, and largely led by students uh, who through not necessarily non-violence but definitely not as we'll see in the second intifada much less violent um, but it was all, uh, largely uh, led by students who had been educated in these West Bank institutions that had been set up and they had no job prospects um, and they just had so much time on their hands and they had read a lot of books. And I mean, it really does kind of come down to that. But Palestinian Christians, as we establish, and Palestinians in general, tend to be very well educated. And so when the, there's no jobs and there's no future for Palestinians, of course, they're going to be the first ones out in the streets throwing rocks at tanks and such. So, and, and kind of as, a, uh, as an anecdote, like pretty much every... I've had a good number of Palestinian professors and... All of them, almost all of them, have been Christian members of the diaspora. So it's it's super, super common to see uh, Palestinian Christians in very well-educated and high-up positions, even at, uh, overseas. So in terms of like key figures, so we have, in modern Palestinian history, we have uh, Kamal Nasser, a uh, Christian born in Bir Zayt. Uh, was, he was a political scientist and a close advisor to Yasser Arafat, who we all know as uh, found one of the founders of the PLO. And... He ran a mil um, so Kamal Nasser. He was a milit He ran a militant newspaper, and he served as a spokesman for the PLO. So he's very high up. Uh, Hanan Ashrari uh, served as uh, on numerous international advisory boards, such as the Mil World Bank of the Middle East and North Africa, and the International Human Rights Council. And she was the first woman elected to the Palestinian National Council. Emil Jarjoui uh, elected a Fatah candidate and as head of the committee that welcomed uh, Pope John Paul II on his visit to Palestine in 2000. Uh, and many more Christians, like this is just a, the start of the list, have and are serving as in high roles in Palestinian leadership, Palestinian authority, and many more in the diaspora, um, as I pointed out, uh, are professors teaching abroad or business people abroad. So clearly, as we can conclude, the, the Christian population has all of the risk factors associated with high terror activity. Uh, they're educated, middle class, uh, well-off, elites of their society. So clearly, it would seem, and this is where, with the conclusion that I came to sitting in class uh, a few years ago, like, it would seem that this would be the, the focused population. You know, people need to pay attention. These are the people that really have the power to influence political violence in Palestine. And, and I, I just want to uh, point out that I'm not saying that, you know, Christianity or Christian terrorism is the important factor. It's not really religious. It's more, uh, especially, you know, especially during the Second Intifada where uh, things started to go in a more Islamist direction with Hamas. Um, and, and there's not like some secret cabal of Palestinian Christian elites, you know, in exile or whatever, planning terror campaigns. It's more just that Palestinian Christians are in a position to have a disproportionate influence. They're elites and they're well educated. So, and, and, and despite this being well known, uh, they have been widely neglected and excluded from the peace process. 
there's no like IDF division uh, or, or um, any kind of intelligence in Israel that will that looks specifically at Christians. And I think this is a huge mistake and uh, it's neglecting a, a really important element of the population. And so the reason for this is, well, one, terrorism is a relatively new field of study. People haven't been studying it all that long. Uh, and then the rise of like Islamic terrorism following the 9-11 attacks has really shifted in that direction. So everybody who studies the field is focused on Islamic terrorism rather than simply nationalist terrorism or, or you know, other um other ways that terrorism is carried out. For example, Hamas, right? Hamas is uh, often who we think of in the modern day as a Palestinian uh, terror organization, kind of quintessential. But they exist for most of their history as an organization providing social services and education, uh, primarily to to people in the Gaza Strip, not necessarily on on the basis of religion, but they always were a religious organization. Um, They didn't make that switch to violence until the imminent decline of the Oslo framework and the, the beginning of the, the Second Intifada. And, and, and they're honestly unique in that they call for an explicitly Islamic Palestine under Sharia law and, and uh, deviating from the majority Fatah opinion, uh, and they call for the complete destruction of Israel. Fatah long ago swore, basically kind of let that go and uh, was working towards more of a, a two-state solution. But Hamas still to this day calls for the destruction of the state of Israel. Very, a very fringe opinion, uh, very far from mainstream like, amongst Palestinians. I think most people on the ground understand that uh, Israel is not going anywhere and the people there, you know, they're not just going to be able to be kicked out or, or, you know, forced to leave. So as Christians are obviously very unlikely to be present in most modern Islamic groups, uh, in order to examine their involvement in terrorism, we can kind of throw out, you know, most Christians are involved in Hamas. Um, but there are a number of very prominent secular nationalist groups that we need to look at. And honestly, they're more important over the history of the conflict. So I basically t- took it took the four most prominent nationalist uh, terrorist groups uh, as case studies. And so in, in order of almost all metrics, so number of attacks, lethality of attacks, uh, general activity, it goes like this. So you have the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, the, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, PFLP, the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, DFLP, and the Abu Nidal organization, which is uh, the militant wing of Fatah, which was the, the more moderate mainstream party. And, um, and, and they don't explicitly back Abu Nidal, but it's kind of like they're attached. A lot of people share between them. So Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade was active mostly 2000 to present. So it's a relatively recent uh, organization. And two of the two of the leaders, very high profile, Chris Bandak and Chris Benedict, are um, were Christians. So basically, two of the most important founders are Christians. The PFLP, active from 1967 to present, were founded by Christians, George Habash and Wadi Haddad. And the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, DFLP, which is active from 1968 to present. Uh, The Secretary General, from its formation to now, is uh, a, a Christian, Nayef Hawatame. Uh, and, and in the Abu Nidal organization, which has been uh, active from 1974 to present, there isn't any Christian leadership. Uh, there is some involvement, but uh, not major. So out of three of the four most active Palestinian secular terrorist organizations, Christians have been uh, critical in either founding or leading them. Um, and so clearly this is uh, the Christians play a really crucial force in this uh, in shaping terrorism. 
Uh, and, and Christians are, are, as I was saying, present at lower levels. So most uh, high profile, perhaps, is the assassination of Bobby Kennedy in 1968 by Greek Orthodox Palestinian Sirhan Sirhan uh, in response to Kennedy's support of sending aid to Israel. So, I mean, that's a way in which Palestinian Christians like directly impacted American politics. Um, but um, overall, there's kind of a, a weirdly distinct lack of Christian militants at low-level, frontline positions. Rarely do Christians show up in names of uh, actual perpetrators of attacks or suicide bombers, uh, although they do, uh, but not in rates higher than their uh, Muslim counterparts. And it, it indicates that Christians play a correspondingly elite role in these organizations. They, like in society... They, they tend to be better off and higher in these organizations. This, and the other thing that we can know for sure is that the scarcity of, of uh, educated pos uh, job positions in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip lead Christians who are overwhelmingly educated to take roles in the mid to high levels of these terror organizations because often they pay better, and if they don't pay better, then they uh, are at least, they seem to be putting their education to work rather than working, you know, you know, let's say they can get uh, permits to go to Israel and work I mean, rather than having to degrade themselves to go through checkpoints every day or to have to work in the West Bank and make, you know, no money at like a convenience store or something. So uh, the, 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 the crazy thing about this is this correlation is going largely unnoticed by counterterrorism experts and scholars. Uh, as I was doing research for this, there's almost no data gathered on it, and so it was it was difficult for me to find data, but I managed to put together a little bit, and when I was writing this, I thought about applying to the university to get uh, a, a small grant to um, buy a plane ticket to go over to Israel and talk to some people about it, uh, because I'm sure that, that on the ground there's a lot more uh, information that I can gather, and I, I'd love to maybe have the opportunity to do that in the future, but... Yeah, I, I found it really fascinating that no one really knew about it. They, they're all focused on uh, Islamic terrorism after 9-11, and, and the Second Intifada kind of shifted the context of the, um, the Palestinian movement from more of a nationalist to more of a religious. But we can't forget that it is at heart nationalist. It is a, it's a colonial struggle, uh, as Israel is a colonial state, trying to figure out where it stands next to the Palestinian natives. So... Why is this important though? Like what, what, what could we gain from learning about these Christians? Well, recognizing their importance gives us advantages in that uh, Christians are a much smaller group than Muslims and so much more easily dealt with. You can deal with a small group of elites much more easily than dealing with the masses, in essence. It's hard to convince a thousand people, but it's easy to convince a hundred or a little bit easier, especially if those hundred people make decisions that, that overwhelmingly affect everyone else. Uh, and so as a minority population, they're more amenable to working outside of and opposing any Islamist political system. So the Christians are much less likely to just go along with a, an Islamist system. They'll be more likely to, to negotiate and work with people who are uh, working towards a more like secular Palestinian state. Um, and then the social and political elites, they hold considerable sway over the future of the Palestinian territory. So by focusing your efforts on Palestinian Christians, you're more efficiently uh, using your efforts to kind of reach the Palestinian people. Focusing on these Christians, it, basically, you're, you're putting resources that you would otherwise be trying to spread out over 97% of the population and instead using it on focused on 3% of the population who themselves have wide influence over everybody else. And, and so, de-radicalizing these Palestinian Christians could help to create a ripple effect that de-radicalizes future generations because, most notably, Christians are overrepresented in the field of education, especially universities. So, by changing the hearts and minds 
so to speak, of uh, these professors, you can help to change the future of uh, the educated class in Palestine, who, as we've already established, are most likely to be involved in terror activities. And so, and as Christians also have access to more economic resources, it can be a useful way to cut off funding to more Islamic groups. If, uh, you know, if, if a Palestinian Christian is uh, Palestinian nationalistly minded, terrorist minded, they may be willing to overlook the Islamic extremism in order just to strike at Israel. And so that's where their money will go. But if you start to deal with the Christians themselves, you can cut off that source of funding. Um, and so ultimately, uh, through, through my studies and what I found is I conclude that Palestinians are disproportionately active in terror activities. But they're also in a very unique position to work towards uh, peace and de-radicalization. So I think not giving them due focus and specific consideration, it's, it's an egregious error in previous counterterrorism operations. And I think it's a huge mistake that uh, and, and a missed opportunity there. So I'd like to see more attention paid to Palestinian Christians as elites in their society and uh, perhaps more outreach to them in terms of counterterrorism operations. Can I make some comments? Yeah, please. No, yeah, that's very interesting because I didn't know about it because, it's, I, I mean, uh, the Christian terrorists, in my point of view, I don't study terrorism so deeply as I should. I thought that only the Christians ones was like located in Europe, like uh, the ROA, the ADA, I mean, some uh, isolated person like the Utoya Island in in Norway, but I mean the the Palestinians ones very interesting to to know about it and it's like a break the paradigm of us that that the terrorist organizations are led created or the major actors are 100% Muslims or the the big bosses are Muslims of, uh, as I said I mean it's really breaks the paradigm yeah it's really interesting. Because, I mean, if you don't identify this as a problem, how are you going to cope this? I mean, right, right. it's not even not even in the horizon of your mind. The, the structure of your thinking doesn't even consider this kind of people because you're just focused on Muslims and non-Christian actors that very important. I mean, the, one of the most important keys of the stability in the area are neglected just because of our structure of thought. I mean, mm -hmm. the discourse have received about, I mean, 9-11, about the, you know, Samuel Huntington and this class of civilization said that Islam has bloody borders. So, I mean, we only think about Islam is this totally the only ones who brings uh, instability, war, and lack of peace in the Middle East. So we don't... Well, don't I mean, that seems like act. a good segue into your topic. So if you just want to roll in, unless Antonio has any more questions about it or comment. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, if you look at it, just to, to restate what Bruno said, if you look at the American narrative, it's usually spun as war with Islam. But here, clearly, you have Israel, who's an ally of the United States, having conflict with Christians, who in general are oftentimes portrayed as, you know, international allies. That's, that is definitely yeah. contrary to the narrative. Oh, I, I think that's an important point to play is that, um, you know, the United States, of course, is a, a huge factor in the conflict and evangelicals even more so are a huge factor. So they, it's in their best interest to, to piggyback off of 9-11 and to play up Islamophobia in the United States um, in terms of the American and Israeli side. Um, but if you look at it objectively and in reality, uh, you're kind of just wasting your efforts. Or not wasting, but, you know, 
you need to factor in these people like they're they're critical and important and, and you'd be um, discrediting yourself if you don't start paying attention to it So if you want to go jump right into that, that sounds good. Yeah, uh, especially that uh, yesterday 9-11 became 18 years old. So it's a good context to bring this, my take, uh, to the surface. So, okay, first of all, I'd like to make a disclaimer and let it, uh, let it be clear that I'm not making any political judgment or try to not make it. If Francis Fukuyama and his theory are right, or how much moral and ethical is Bush government? Of course, we can discuss that later, and we think we should, but it's not my intention, not my point to do it right now. So my take will be divided into three parts to better understanding to my to my mental organization, because I mean, it's kind of a great amount of information, but I'll try to be objective and quick. The first part will be a presentation of what Francis Fukuyama wanted to say in his article, The End of History, and what's the main argument. The second part will be an exposition of the context of Bush national security strategy and what were its intentions. And finally, the third part, I'll try to connect to the two parts showing how End of History has a great deal on the Bush NSS formulation. Again, I don't want to set through, I just want to let the debate. So, so let's get started. So first, Fukuyama, love or hate it. I mean, I have, I, during my graduation period, I had mixed feelings about him and his, his idea, but you just can't ignore it. Alongside Simon Huntington, a class of civilization, I think he's one of the great, great names of international studies theory in the mediate post-Cold War period. And nonetheless, before we dive into his ideas themselves, I think it's very important to bring the context of the article and of his story was in. Uh, published in 1989, the article was close to a, it's still sure, we have to, we have to be this clear in your mind, end of USSR. I know that for us that seemed really obvious when, but we have to admit that is it's easier to assess things after they happening so seeing uh, the very obvious things in the present moment is very hard. So the USSR dismantle was not that clear and obvious as we tend to know that time. Uh, with this in mind, uh, let's pass to the article itself. Fukuyama starts stating that 20th century showed humanity that the overwhelming victory of economic and political, economic and political liberalism of fascism, Nazis, Nazis, and communism, making the Western civilization the winner. And Fukuyama goes on to make his main point, saying that the end of Cold War doesn't mean the only doesn't mean only the end of communism, but the end of ideological evolution and the universalization of liberal democracy as the ultimate form of government. But he makes a disclaimer, saying that it's a victory in the ideas realm despite being a complete victory in the material <laughs> realm. You guys, you can interrupt me anytime you want. Yeah, any yeah, questions. for sure. 
be, don't hesitate to do so. But where does the idea of, of ideological progress come from? I mean, Fukuyama uses an interpretation of a French guy named Alexander Kojave in his interpretations of Hegel's ideas. Fukuyama doesn't read Re Hegel, he reads someone who reads Hegel. And the, idea, the Hegel's idea of civilization progress and the theory would end in establishment of a rational form of state and society, whatever it means. And for Hegel, uh, the history engine is the struggle of man to be a knowledge from the other man. And in and some ways, Hegel is like, he's like a predecessor to Marx. Uh, Marx, uh, Kind of studied yeah. Hegel. Yeah, the all uh, the thing, the idea of end of history. I mean, the, the he um, Marx is a materialistic one, and Hegel is an idealistic yeah. one. I mean, uh, Marx says the end of history would be the establishment of the communism, and Hegel would be the achievement of the rational form of state. Marx read Hegel before he started to writing, and Fukuyama, his article says that that time, I mean, was 1990s. There was being a revival of Hegel's ideas because it was like a for, forgotten under Marx's preeminence, especially due to USSR existence. Okay, the engine of history is the struggle of man to have to be mutually acknowledged from the other man. And the German philosopher said that the struggle ended with the French Revolution's values of equality because when you were equal. You're equal. It's a categorical status, and you can be. It can be enhanced according to Hegel. So when you recognize the others as equal, the struggle ends. Uh, so when Fukuyama sees the fact that Western civilization is the only one which established on these principles, he states that the West achieved the end of history because democracy and its values ended the acknowledgement struggle among men. So despite the rest of the world is not under these principles, as Fukuyama says. The material realm, the ideological one is conquered by the West and the French Revolution slash liberalism values, and they cannot be enhanced, being this the end of history. So that's the point of Fukuyama. The liberalism and French revolutions are the end of history because the history only happens in the mind. I mean, Napoleon Bonaparte has a, a, a quote. That he says that imagination makes the world. So imagination does... Uh, as the product of mind, the product of thinking. Uh, differently from Marx, the world is not made by material, it's made by, it's made by ideas. So let's jump into the part two the, about the national security strategy from Bush. So the national security strategy of the United States of America, the Shape the Bus Administration, was published in September uh, 2002. It starts to say that 20th century was a struggle between freedom and totalitarianism ending with the demonstration that this, quote, the single sustainable model for national success is freedom, democracy, and free enterprise, end quote. It goes on saying, quote again, I mean, I'll be quoting a lot just to make you guys sure that it's written on the document. I'm not pretending i'm not i mean making these things up it goes saying that quote these values of freedom are right and true for every person in every society and the duty of protecting these values against the enemies is common calling of freedom loving people across the global and across the ages and the documents states the united states mission is quote create a balance of power that favor humans freedom and extend the peace by encouraging free and open societies on every continent. 
So the real main goal of the NSS is to protect the Western civilization and the values which underpin this way of life. It's getting even clearer when it says the allies of terror, we must remember that 9-11 events and Bush crusade against terrorism was the same time, closely, are the enemies of civilization. So the allies of terror are the enemies of civilization. And interesting to note that a national strategy speak in behalf of entire civilization. So the United States is speaking in the name of Western civilization, not in the name of the United States of America and straight, uh, sovereign state. So another part of the document praises that the so-called American values I don't know, guys, if it's offend you all, but I mean, I'm Brazilian, I'm the global south, so I said the so-called American values are spreading and shows how this can benefit global peace. It says that, quote, the world, the world's great powers find ourselves in the same side. Take a reference, the Russian, the document, the document goes, quote, reaching its democratic future end quote. And the Chinese leaders are discovering the economic freedom is the only source of national wealth. It even adds that China, quote, will find the social political freedom, find that social political freedom is the only source of national greatness. So the document states that the United States will use this moment of opportunity to extend benefits of freedom across the globe and break the hope of democracy development, free market, and free trade to every corner of the world. And before the last sentence, the document, in the document is written, today humanity holding hands, the opportunity to further freedom's triumph all over, false, F-O-E-S. F-O-E, foes, foes, like enemies. Foes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Foes, yeah, like enemy, yeah. So that is my take on the NSS. So let's get jumps to part three to when the things are connected. I don't know you guys, but for me, it's pretty clear the influence of Fukuyama's idea in formulation of the NSS, even though the document doesn't explicitly quote or make any reference to Fukuyama's idea. It's look like the Bush NSS wants to accelerate the process of ending history. I mean, uh, I say so because as Fukuyama said, even though the ideological realm is already won by the French Revolution values of equality and liberty, the material re realm is far distant from this. So the U.S. as the bastion of the Western civilization has the duty to make the world more similar to the world dreamed by Hegel and Fukuyama. It's clear in the first sentence of the document when repeats France Fukuyama's idea with just with other words. I mean since it's written in 20th century was a battle between liberty and serfdom, as Fukuyama said in his own article. The document, in my opinion, is so drenched with this ideology that says that the way towards a liberal society, it's only a matter of rationality. When it says that China will eventually discover the path of freedom, or that Russia is reaching a democratic future look like it's inevitable because history goes this direction and we can prevent this to happen. This document is, a, for me personally, is a quintessential proof that for Bush, for Bush administration policymakers, America must end any pretension from other civilizations to create other forms of society that are supposedly better than liberal one. 
because in the Hegel vision, it's the it's rationally impossible to make other things better than the liberal values, and the efforts effort to create or expand this other type of values or civilizations only generates instability, war, poverty, and violence, uh, which could be only coped by the liberal former government. So it would be a moral duty, moral duty of America since it enlightened by the experience and benefits of free society to extend the benefits of freedom across the globe. I want to end my thought repeating a phrase presented in the document spoken by the former President Bush in 2002 that sums, sums up pretty much what I have to say. The, the sentence goes like this. Our nation's cause has always been larger than our nation's defense. And that's it. Hmm. I, think that's a, I think it's a good point. I mean... Yeah, you're, you're right. Like, whether or not he actually drew inspiration from Fukuyama, I think it's pretty clear that it's based in the same kind of vein of liberal foreign policy. Liberal in the foreign policy aspect, right, in which kind of Bush is the epitome of liberal foreign policy, the idea of spreading, you know, democracy and, and, and liberalism and stuff like that and free markets, uh, lowering tariffs and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, I think uh, the last tw maybe 20 years have made it difficult to kind of defend that position. But um, I think it's a it's a valid, uh, a valid like philosophy to take into account, like alongside of, you know, the other ways of looking at it. Definitely defending freedom or spreading freedom that that has that hasn't really actually been the actions of the United States. It's right. been more like spreading. Right. I mean, we want to give freedom to like Iraq and the Middle East as long as they have oil. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that's necessarily well, true in, in um, maybe in philosophy, but right. not in practice. Yeah, it's, it seems like, uh, well, Especially in the case of the Bush administration. I mean, it's a lot of posturing is what it is. Uh, the actions of the United States don't really reflect that uh, kind of pursuit, um, especially with like kind of the decay of American um, foreign policy in recent years. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think it's definitely like if there was ever like a tribunal brought up to on George Bush, like that's like the most hypocritical thing that he's probably done. His foreign policy, pitching this idea of liberalism to the world, but then going about pursuing, you know, almost unilateral intervention and uh, uh, almost realist policies for uh, United States uh, economic benefit. I don't know. I, I, I think it's, it's easy to catch catch him up on that because especially in the United States all foreign policy is domestic policy people take foreign policy stances to better uh, their own political futures at home so it's not surprising that a politician like Bush would champion these very popular liberal ideas that you know everybody can get behind the, the rhetoric of it yeah we want everybody to have rights and democracy the real question isn't so much that as in how do we achieve this how do we like what is the best way to go about like of course we're going to we we want to we all want to spread uh democracy and and human rights to people but there are right ways to do that and there are wrong ways to do it and i think that the bush administration is a master class in the wrong way to do that really not an expert with regards to fukuyama um or political you know modern day political theorists i'm mainly old school political theorists but um i, w I do have to say i feel like Fukuyama and people that kind of shill right-wing economic theory. I feel like they're more, they're kind of given these positions because of the views. It's not necessarily the views themselves holding a lot of, you know, empirical proof. I feel like people like Fukuyama are kind of just like propagandists to some degree of like, 
economic interests. This is basically the sophistry to get an agenda passed. And the agenda is, you know, economic colonialism throughout the United, throughout the world by the United States. And this is just like the underlying sophistry to, to have that happen. I, I would have a more critical perspective of what he says. Yeah. Well, uh, Bruno's just trying to get his mic fixed. So uh, we'll let him do that real quick. But um, no, I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. I, I think that... Um, Can you listen to me right now? Yeah. Yeah, we got you. Yeah. All right, Antonio, do you want to say your, your point and then... I feel like political theorists like Fukuyama, who advocate a free market capitalist and liberal worldview, especially during the Bush era of all eras, are kind of just political sophists to uh, advance the agenda of economic colonialism by the United States to basically get domination from basically the you know competing power interests China for example okay. yeah go ahead. no I, I I don't see them as a sub uh, this kind of like a, a lie it's just a lie to make things happen I I, I really th- think that they believe in this they believe in the true values of free market or democracy but i mean i think they believe they, it but, they, but they, they they believe in a world i think and where i can kind of bridge between your two points is i think that they truly believe that and want to spread democracy and liberalism but they want to do so with the united states leading they don't want to do it in an egalitarian way that would cede u.s influence and power they want to do it in such a way that grows U.S. influence and power because adding democracies and liberal societies to the world community strengthens the United States' position as kind of the leader of the free world. Uh, And I think that's kind of the foreign policy objective there. So while it may be motivated by well-meaning, it also is motivated by kind of this uh, self-serving, self-interest kind of policy. Which, of course, how can you expect states to not act in their own self-interest? But I think... Uh, we're getting to a certain point in history where uh, we need to start thinking about states uh, and their uh, collective needs of people rather than, you know, kind of a, a realist, like, you know, I need to get ahead at the expense of other countries. Yeah. No, yeah, it's, it's totally a, a tool for domination and foreign policy to be it's 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 easy it's easier when you're create a narrative that your point of view is the right one. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, and you, you you can you can be wrong since you're you are the ideal of what's right. Mm. So when America creates this narrative and try to spread it uh, in every corner of the world, they try to make uh, make themselves an example of what's right, and total uh, any refusal of this proposal is automatically wrong morally and ethically in even the eyes of history whatever it means and and with morally wrong like you were saying a lot of these liberal you know these free market kind of economies that the united states tries to create throughout the largely the developing world a lot of them are not liberal democracies a lot of them are maybe democracies a name but then authoritarian super right-wing authoritarian <laughs> so yeah. that's not extremely democratic as is i think that's the vast majority of cases to be honest so one of the one of the things about the united (laughs) states that i think is really a shame is you know we we think about the united states as the great experiment right the democratic experiment and i think that's the best way to look at it like our country was built the, the constitution was created in such a way that it can be changed and updated and i think that 
the United States needs to see itself as an experiment, something that is changeable, and and we don't know. Like, there's no conclusion. And once the United States starts becoming self-righteous, as it has, and starts becoming inflexible, we're the longest continuously governed country by a single document. So, you know, we've since the, the adoption of the Constitution, we've had this literally the same Constitution. It's been amended a little bit, but more or less the same document, which is not normal. And in most countries, like, think about how many republics France has had. Like they've had like mm-hmm. they've had so many different Five. governments, yeah. So I think the United States, uh, it's time for us to take a look at ourselves and to try, try and become more flexible. Uh, and and I I personally am one who would like to see a constitutional convention in our in my lifetime, but you know who knows. No, yeah, it's very hard because the own myth of unchangeable constitution, yeah, uh, make this type of convention even harder. Well, also, because, like, I mean, even e- even beyond politics, to break the historical. Yeah, it's like there's this kind of concept of white supremacy that's really resurging now. I mean, it's always been there, but now it's kind of like with Trump and everything, it's being given a new new life. And I I think it's just such weird revisionism. Like, it's getting away from the heart of the country. Like, we're all immigrants. You know, everybody who can't, nobody here except for some of the Native Americans who are still left. You know, we all were immigrants at some point. And I mean, I think that's what the country is supposed to be. It's supposed to reflect the people who who come here. And and I think that's the great thing about it. And it's very sad to see that being co-opted and and changed into this idea of, you know, America is for certain people. It's completely anathema to the even concept of America. Yeah, it's 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 totally the opposite of ontology what America is. I mean, Mm. a country made of immigrants saying that immigrants are not welcome anymore yeah in in john stewart's words america is a country of immigrants persecuting newer immigrants it's a a great john stewart it's a great john stewart quote uh does anybody have any any more comments on that or should we go to the number of the week so so 68 was the number 68 yeah car well 68 something right no okay not car related since since we talk about all the subjects that we want to talk so it's a little, a lot of them. I can say that the number has to do with one of the topics. One of the topics. Today. Okay. Okay. So I like, mean, it could be any of them. It could be just one. Yeah. I don't know. Sixty-eight. I think we're gonna need more of a hint. Um, is it? It's not a percentage, is it? it no, it's a percentage. It is a per- Okay, so there we go. That's one clue. Um. Is it like, is it politically related to, to American politics? No, hmm. not exactly. I think to everybody politics. Everybody politics. Um, do you it, have any it, ideas? It's a global on, issue. A global issue. Do you have any ideas, Antonio? I have no ideas. Okay. I'm thinking like a 68 uh, uh, Chevy Impala uh, or something. Is it, it's a percent though, so. Yeah. Yeah, no. yeah. Uh, one more hint in the last one has to do with the environment. The rainforest, 68% of the rainforest is going to burn because of global warming. 68% of habitats are destroyed. No, no. No, it's kind of this. but 60% of the polar ice cap is melted. 68% of polar bears are going to... No, no, okay, okay. Can I reveal this? Yeah, yeah, you can reveal it. 
Right. 68% of wildlife population around the world have fallen on uh, average since or, 1970. Or is that wildlife number of species diet. extinct? No, or, no, or just no, and, no, they didn't go extinct. They were like uh, falling the quantity. Just in number of them. Okay. Yeah. 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 Still, that's a lot though. So, I, I mean, the, the report says it's from WWF study. And the report said that the decline is clear evidence of humanity's destruction of the natural world and the coronavirus pandemic is a grim reality check of this consequence of wildlife habitat loss. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, uh, there, is, a, there is a TV show called Mars, I've, I've already talked about it here in some episodes, that says that, I mean, they make a lot of uh, uh, connections with... Uh, Outer Antarctica exploration, uh, and said that the melting ice can wake some virus up right. that was like prehistorical, and we don't know how to deal with them. Yeah. It can be a, the new pandemic when the ice melts. And well, there's been like there's been pockets again. of water like frozen under ice that are you know have never been in millions of years, never been exposed, and now because of the melting ice, you know who knows what's in that? Like there could be like ancient. Uh, pathogens that you know we have no concept of so like who knows like maybe some disease in my, in my imaginary i hope it's the megalodon they come yeah. back to life <laughs> i hope so. after being frozen yeah like in the movie. i'm kind of nostalgic because yesterday uh, i watched a jurax park oh, okay. again so yeah there I'm you go of... there you go <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of Steven Spielberg movies, I was just uh, um, I was just at the beach uh, when I was camping, and there were signs for there. There, a woman was killed by a great white like uh, a few days before, or something like that. Uh, so, and I actually saw some seals there too, which is what they hunt. So that was pretty cool. But yeah, just Ooh. kind of a, just kind of anecdotally related, you know, great whites and uh, Jurassic mm -hmm. Park. So, but anyway, well, that's pretty nice. Yeah. Uh, so is that is that gonna be it for everybody? Uh, anybody got any closing comments? All right. No, I'm fine. All right. Well, I guess we'll see you next week, guys. Have a good one. See you next week, Andrew and Bruno. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode and fresh topics for discussion. Please like and subscribe on your chosen podcast platform and stay safe. See you next week. Hey everybody, I'm excited to announce our first partner, the Political Debate Discord. Political Debate is a diverse, active political debate Discord server with the goal of discussing and debating politics in a civil manner. Political Debate currently has 4,850 members and counting and it has features such as self-assignable reaction roles for endorsed ideologies, occasional server giveaways, exclusive ideology channels like liberal-only or conservative-only, and suggested debate topics. Personally, I haven't really participated much in the server, but I've been a long-time lurker and I've enjoyed seeing the different viewpoints and ideologies presented in the server. A link will certainly be posted in the comments section of this episode. Political Debate aims at having a civil server and tries to keep the server as clean and professional as possible. Political Debate bans crude language, spam, and racist slurs.